Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I pray that you would uh, lift our eyes this morning to see the greatness of your Son. Uh, he is our only Saviour, um, and knowing him is our only true delight. Uh, Lord, please show us Christ. Amen. <clears throat> well, everyone loves an underdog story. Uh, Hollywood seems to be built on the fact. Uh, war movies are all, almost always really about a, an impossibly small force of impossibly brave people taking on an impossibly powerful army and pulling off an impossibly unlikely victory. Hero movies are all about how sacrifice, teamwork and justice mean that a, a strong villain can be overcome by a, a, a weaker hero just because they are doing the right thing. In sports movies, of course, all the, the heroes are pretty much always the weaker, pathetic team. It's never any good rooting for the, the powerful, mighty uh, favourites to win. Dramas, are, who doesn't love a, a rags-to-riches story? We all love hearing about an underdog sticking it to a great power. It makes us feel good, I guess, about, about everyday life, really, doesn't it? Most of the time it's not uh, the underdogs that win, it's the greatest power that gets the greatest victory. But our passage today tells the story of one man representing just a tiny persecuted minority defeating one of the greatest military powers the world has ever seen. And putting it that way really makes it sound like an underdog story, right? Uh, but there's just one problem. This is no underdog story. This is a story about the greatest power of all time and how that greatest power achieves the greatest victory of all time. Uh, so if you have a Bible, uh, please open it to the book of Isaiah, chapter 13, uh, and I'll tell you this story of the greatest power. Isaiah chapter 13, uh, starting from verse 1, and I'll read all the way down to the second verse of chapter 14. Um, so please read with me as I, I read out of Isaiah chapter 13. <clears throat> the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a bare hill raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have, consecrated my, have commanded my consecrated ones, I have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. 
They will be in anguish like a woman in labour. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts and the day of his fierce anger. Like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed before, dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. <clears throat> uh, well, as we read through, uh, as we go through this morning, we're going to uh, look at three powers that come up in this passage. Uh, and the first one is introduced there to us in, in verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon. Uh, this was uh, a great ancient city-state. <coughs> uh, uh, it was a pretty good contender, really, for the greatest power. In fact, they were one of the greatest powers the world has ever known. At the time, as I wrote this, though, they were sort of the up-and-comers of the geopolitical stage. Assyria, you might have heard us um, speak about them a few times if you've been listening to our series on Isaiah. Assyria were the dominant superpower. Um, but in just a few decades after Isaiah wrote, Babylon were going to eat Assyria for breakfast. Uh, Babylon would be the ones that went on to conquer Jerusalem. Uh, when, when Daniel spoke of uh, four great empires of human history, Babylon made the cut. They were a powerful, powerful nation. 
Um, and in fact, their significance here isn't even just limited to how big they were as a nation. Um, in fact, it goes all the way back to <coughs> the Noah's Ark flood. Because ever since just after the flood, Babylon set themselves up as the proudest nation on earth. Uh, you might remember the story of uh, the Tower of Babel. People decided that they were going to build a tower that could rival God's power. Um, and Babel there is another name for the city of Babylon. And so, so we s- what we're supposed to remember as we read of Babylon here is that just after the flood, the very first thing humankind did was try to rival God's power in Babylon. God, if you recall, had to confuse human languages just to show them who's boss. But even still, Babylon didn't stop their arrogance. Uh, Later on in chapter 14, the city of Babylon is, is pictured as saying, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. These guys were the the epitome of human pride. They were the emblem, as it were, of human arrogance. (coughs) At least in their mind, they certainly were the greatest power in the world. Uh, And if the world didn't think so when Isaiah wrote, it certainly would uh, in a couple of centuries. Um, So that begs the question, as we're thinking this morning about the greatest power, is Babylon the greatest power in the world? Well, obviously not, because Babylon's kingdom is is pretty much consigned to history books now. It kind of gives you the answer, doesn't it? It hasn't lasted We know from history uh, that Babylon's uh, reign was ended by the conquering power of the Medes. Just as Isaiah said that he uh, was going to do, God was going to do in verse 17. This once great civilization was reduced to a barren wasteland. Great cities lie completely abandoned. The whole nation is uninhabited, so much so the people aren't even game to camp there is what is described in this chapter houses fortifications entire cities that were once the greatest in the world are now wastelands where you'll find wild animals now why is this significant well remember if you have been, again, if you've been following along, you'll remember that, I, that Israel had this massive issue with trusting in the proud people. Uh, we're only 13 chapters into the book, aren't we? But already they've trusted in Uzziah, their king, who was kind of a good king and brought a lot of prosperity. They've trusted in the power of Assyria, the greatest nation. They've trusted in wealth, might, all sorts of different things. They have this issue 
that they trust in whoever seems to be strong, proud, powerful, whoever they, the, the, the people of earth that they think will bring them the most prosperity. And yet, never God. <clears throat> but here in this passage, God warns them it won't last. You'll only get burned if you trust in these worthless things. Babylon are the up-and-comers on the world stage, as I said. And God is saying even they're going to end not too long from now. The power of the world won't last. Don't trust human power. It's all going to come crumbling down. And of course, that's no less true today, is it? In Babylon's defeat, we are to see the defeat of all the world, all the world's powers. Look at verses 6 and 7. Wail for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. Verse 9, God God says he's going to make the land a desolation. The the land there is talking about the whole world, the the whole of land. Uh, He's going to destroy the world's sinners. Verse 11, God will punish the world for its evil. The warning still stands for every single person today. The pride and power of men should not be trusted. There is no stable hope to be found in the pride and power of man. And so that begs an important question. Are you trusting in the pride and power of man? Now, this is a serious question. It's something that we really need to think carefully about. If almighty destruction is near, if death is coming on everyone who trusts in mankind, then then this here is literally a life or death question. Are you trusting in the pride and power of man? Um, to help you answer that question, uh, I want to give you three questions. Um, these, these three questions will pro- hopefully help you draw the line of what it means to trust in, in man uh, and work out which side of that line you're on. So, firstly, who do you think has the answers to the big questions of life? Who do you think has the big truths of life? Secondly, how do you think the big problems of life will be solved? Thirdly, what do you expect of the future? Now, these three questions are probably sounding a bit philosophical and To be fair, they are very deep questions. Uh, But they have to be, because these are deep, deep issues. And perhaps you want to pause the video and think through them. And that's okay. Please take all the time you need to think through this important issue. But it's because it's so important that we take the time to think through this. Because they are questions that we have answers to, um, and the answers that we have in our minds, whether consciously or not, if we think it through and, and we, we find the answers that we have in our minds, this will help us de- determine whether we're 
trusting in man or not? Um, so firstly, again, who do you think has the big answers of life? Uh, well, maybe you think people have the big answers of life. Uh, we all make our own truth. We all have the truth somewhere inside of us. We just have to discover it. Or maybe, maybe it's not us ourselves, but scientists, philosophers, they are the people that have the big answers of life. But either way, if you, you, you're thinking along the lines of people have the big answers. Um, question two, what, how do you think the big problems of life will be solved? Um, well, again, maybe it has to do with what people do. <coughs> uh, we all need to get along and work together. We all need to do the right thing. We all need to, to put the good of common people first. Uh, we need to work together for a common goal, or, or maybe even the opposite. We need to put our own needs first, so that everyone gets what they really need. But again, we're, we're talking about things that people do here. Um, and so the third question, what do you expect in the future? Um, now I'm not talking about, like, just tomorrow or the next day. I'm talking about, what do you think of the the big future for mankind. See, maybe you think that humanity will go from strength to strength. Eventually we'll, we'll rise above our differences, we'll just go from, from glory to glory from then on. We'll, we'll probably spread across the solar system, uh, cross the galaxy, conquer the stars. Human history looks bright. Well, if your answers are sounding something like that, then you probably do trust in human pride and power. People are the heroes of your history. And here in this passage, again, this is what we are being warned against. We can't trust in people. Um, but that's not, in fact, the only way to trust in people. See... You can think that God has the right has the answers to life's big questions. But in terms of fixing the big problems, it's still about what people do. We need to do what God wants. See, there's a difference between believing truths about God uh, intellectually and trusting Him implicitly. Trusting God obviously does mean that we believe He has the big answers of life, absolutely. But it also means that it's only what He does, only what Jesus does that can save us from the big problems of life. And it means that, that what we expect for the future, big picture, is that God is going to save the day. <clears throat> God is going to be shown to be great and glorious and wonderful. But it, again, if you think that we can fix our own problems, if, if people are in any way the heroes of your history, then you're trusting in the pride and power of man. And if you're trusting in that power, Listen to the warning of this passage. That power won't last. It will come cr crushing down one day. It always does. Even the last 
nation, the, the last civilization of earth will be defeated one day. So that God is the great and powerful. You will be left with nothing between you and God's anger. It's just not worth it. Humanity can't be trusted to save itself. You need to trust something's better. But maybe that's not what you think. Maybe you've been disillusioned by all that the world has to offer. You, you know that the power of the world won't last and you're looking for something better. Maybe you're still making your mind up about who you should trust. But you, even still, you know that people don't have all the answers to the big questions of life. We, we can't solve all the big problems of life on our own. You, you, you expect that human history is going to end in a smoking pile of wreckage, like those dystopian futures we see on TV. Everyone fighting and scrambling for the last little bit of survival. Well, if you think along those lines, then listen up. Let me introduce you to something better, a power that won't fail. The power is the power of the Lord. This is point number two. The power of the Lord won't fail. Uh, let me tell you a story. The pieces of a chess set got into an argument one day over who has the most power in the game. The, the king, of course, said, I am the most powerful. If, if I get captured, you lose the game. The rest of you are all expendable, but I am the most powerful. But the queen was having none of it. She goes, no, I'm the most powerful. I can move from this square in any direction as far as I like. The rest of you are all too restricted. I am the most powerful. And the knights scoffed at this too. They said, no, we are the most powerful. We can, we can jump over the rest of you. It makes us incredibly slippery. We're, we're hard to trap. We are the most powerful. And of course, the argument went on and on, each piece adamant that it was more powerful than every other piece. But here's the thing, they are all wrong. In truth, the most powerful in, or, or even the only powerful aspect to a game of chess is the one playing it. The player can make all 16 pieces of their side move and without the player, none of them can move. The pieces are, are in total control of the player. They are the most powerful. Um, so what we see here in Isaiah with the Babylonians, the Medes, the Assyrians, are all trying to say that they're most powerful, um, but it's like chess pieces arguing. All throughout human history, every nation, every person wants to say that they are the most powerful, but it's like chess pieces arguing. Because God is playing chess with human history, and he's playing both sides of the board. God is completely in control over all of human history. In, in verses 2 and 3, God just has to crook his finger and the entire world's armies 
come running. Verse 14, the Lord, uh, sorry, verse 4, the Lord is mustering a host for battle. Verse 5, the, this army is the weapons of his, in, his indignation. Verse 6, we read of destruction from the Almighty. Uh, verse <coughs> sorry. Uh, verses 11 to 13, um, God is again the active agent. He says, I will punish, I will put an end, I will make, I will make. Verse 17, I am stirring up the Medes. Verse 19, God overthrew them. God is the one with true power. The power of the Lord won't fail. God is the greatest power. The greatest victory belongs to Him alone. And what a wonderful, great truth that is. Now, as New Testament believers, we have a greater insight into this than Isaiah did, uh, because the New Testament tells us that it's in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that the victory of God was achieved. Colossians 2.15 says that God, dis the Father, disarmed every ruler and authority, put them to open shame by triumphing over them through the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus rose from the dead, he declared, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And in Revelation 19, we have this great and awesome picture of Jesus riding from heaven in victory over the entire assembled armies of the, of the world. We cannot trust mankind to save the world and conquer the universe, but we can trust that Jesus has already done both. But it gets even better, because he hasn't even done it for his own sake. See, Babylon were seeking to rule for the sake of its pride. I want to be the greatest because I want to be the greatest. But in verse 1 of chapter 14, we see God's reason for conquering the world. He says the Lord will have, it says, it's the reason is the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. In actual fact, it's God's love which motivates him to lay waste to the pride of the world. Because <clears throat> the, the power of the world doesn't satisfy, it doesn't bring justice, it doesn't bring salvation or life. Um, instead, God is sticking up for the little guy. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that such a wonderful sight? Isn't he worthy of our love? And, and it gets even better than that, though. Because the little guy is us. Jesus is sticking up for the little guy, and the little guy is us. In chapter 14, God has compassion on Israel, his chosen people, together with all those who join with them in trusting in Jesus. See, none of us in this church 
so far as I know, are of actual Jewish descent. But the promise still extends to us because we are the the foreigners, the sojourners of chapter 14, verse 1, who have been joined to Israel. We who have trusted in Jesus have the promise of victory in him because of the compassion of God. And so now if, if you have not trusted in Jesus, then I encourage you to do so. It's not a decision um, that you ought to make lightly. It, it means, as, as you've probably guessed, that you're going to spend the rest of your life rejecting the pride of mankind. But it's absolutely worth it. Jesus is the greatest power on earth. He is victorious. The greatest power has gone to the greatest victory and he shares that victory uh, with the, everyone who trusts in him. And so if that's where you're at today, then that's what I want to leave you with. Feel free to, to stop the video, uh, consider your options, learn what it means to trust in Jesus. Please talk to someone you know who's a Christian, um, whoever perhaps introduced you to this sermon. Talk to them about what it means to trust in Jesus. Um, so yeah, so please, if that's you, put, stop the video here. Don't worry about watching the last 10 minutes or whatever it is. Um, but I have a third point, and this one is actually addressed to people who are already Christian. We've seen that the power of the world won't last. And we've seen that the power of the Lord won't fail. And thirdly, uh, if you're a Christian, I want you to see that in the long run, the power of the church won't matter. Uh, this is our third point. And so if Jesus has the greatest power, he has achieved the greatest victory. And if he is going to bring us into that victory, then we can have confidence for the future. Uh, we can be confident about our, our victory since it's found in Jesus. Uh, look there in the promise of chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, God says, The peoples will take God's people and bring them to their place. The house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. Now, perhaps this seems a bit like a harsh turn, a bit of a weird twist. Aren't God's people supposed to be the good guys? Shouldn't they be kind and, and gracious in victory? Why are they possessing slaves or um, ruling over those who oppressed them? Um, well, the point here is, is not so much the slavery, it's, it's the turning of the tables. Israel were the slaves of the nations, now the nations are their slaves. Israel were captives, now the nations are instead. Uh, Israel were oppressed, um, and now they can rule with an iron fist. <coughs> it's not so much a, a literal description of how Israel is going to behave in, the, in, in eternity. This is uh, more a, an illustration of the victory that God has achieved for them. The, the imagery here is designed to highlight the magnitude of the victory that's found in Jesus. 
the, the scum of the world are now its rulers with complete authority over the whole world. The meek have inherited the earth. <coughs> um, and these are promises of God. We will have victory in Jesus. And that's there's an important application here that not only should we not trust the world's power, but as Christians, we don't even need to fear it. The power of the world is under Jesus' control and it will be under ours. Isn't that exciting? But I'm sure I don't need to tell you that that's not how it is now. Right now, it seems like the greatest powers of the world uh, are fighting the church. Society is, is, is increasingly anti-Christian. Much of the history of the Western world um, has been spent with Christianity in, in power, in positions of influence. Um, right from the 3rd uh, or 4th century to just a few decades ago, really, the church held great power and influence in society. And many of you probably remember that time and maybe even, I'm sure, remember it fondly. Um, a, a society that's anti-Christian is in many ways a foreign concept to you, uh, perhaps even a fearful concept. And this is where the promise of the victory of the church becomes really practical. Because even though the church has little power or influence in the world. Even though our, our, our crumbling positions of influence are hard to let go, even though the loss is hard to come to terms with, we shouldn't fear it as if it would be the end of the church. This is not the end. What we read in chapter 14 is the end. We, we shouldn't fear these things as if God's sovereignty is in, in any way in jeopardy. Again, it's not in jeopardy. Jesus is the powerful victor. He's already achieved that victory, as I've said. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't lament the lost benefits for society uh, as Christian values are abandoned. We should lament. It is a great loss. I'm, I'm not saying we should give up on the West, we should let society slide into unabated debauchery. We shouldn't give up, we should fight. And, and nor am I saying that it's going to be easy to be a Christian, to spread the gospel in an anti-Christian culture. It won't be easy, it will be hard. This is a difficult transition to make. But here's what I am saying. No matter how powerful the world is, no matter how anti-Christian its agenda, no matter how weak and pitiful and ignored the church gets, even still, the church is no less victorious. Because we trust in Christ. And He is victorious over all earthly power and pride and glory forever and evermore. Amen.
And so it is easy as, as Christians to feel like underdogs, outnumbered, outgunned in the world. But all who trust in Jesus will share in his victory because he is the greatest power and he is victorious over all. And so let's pray and thank him for that. Our sovereign Lord, we look to you uh, in faith and trust. We know, uh, Jesus, that we are helpless. We are insignificant, worthless humans before your greatness. And yet, in your grace and your love, you delight to lift us up, to, to join you on your throne. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for that. We pray that you would uh, that we would find confidence uh, and hope in that hope, in that, in that promise that you have given us more and more. In the name of Christ, the eternal King of all, we pray. Amen.